there was an album called Dream Police, and they were yeah. uh, all handcuffed to themselves, and they were wearing both police uniforms and regular street clothes. And in that image, I think every head and every body was was attached. It was, you know, you cut out a head from one picture and you put another <laughs> body. And that stuff was, you know, and there was no computer. You were doing this by hand, and the retoucher would have to sand the photographs so you couldn't see the line of the cut. I mean, it was, it was quite a production. Wow. One of the things I love most about hosting uh, this podcast is that I selfishly get to chat with, uh, you know, creative people that I admire and I look up to, and uh, it's just a real joy, and it's I just love doing it, and uh, and then I just hope that uh, that you folks um, get something out of it as well through our conversations. And um, there's no better example than today's guest. Uh, this is episode 36. Welcome to Overtime. I'm Dan Cederholm, uh, your host, and today we're talking with the legendary Paula Scher. Um, and I use legendary very seriously. It, she's a legend. Uh, she's had a career spanning over four decades, and there's many album covers that you that you uh, know about that she art directed and. We talk about the Citibank logo, designing that, and Windows, uh, Microsoft Windows 8, you know, just her career as a um, partner at Pentagram and her paintings. And just, it was just an absolute honor to uh, to talk with Paula. Um, kind of amazing. Uh, very, very frightened of <laughs> interviewing her. <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't acro- come across in uh, in the episode, but... Um, we we thank her very much for uh, taking the time to talk to talk with us, and um, I think you're you're going to enjoy this one. Super enjoy this one. Also, this episode is brought to you by Wix.com. Push the limits of design and start creating beautiful, impactful websites that are uniquely yours with Wix. And now let's get on to the main event: our chat with Paula Share. Welcome to Overtime, Paula Scher. Hi. Hi. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to have you. Uh, a real honor. I want to thank you uh, right off the bat for just taking the time today to talk with us. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan. I know there's a lot of huge fans out there of your your work and your career, and it spans all, uh, just this large breadth of, of amazing stuff you've done. So it's almost difficult to decide where to where to start. And, uh, but I think, I think I'd like to just kind of start with, um, you know, your, your time at CBS records as an album cover designer. Um, you, you spent, I think it's 10 years there, uh, in the beginning of your your career. And I wonder, well, there's a couple of things I wondered. One is what a great job, what an awesome job that probably is for, for someone starting out. And, And also was music, a big influence on on your life prior to that, and I also heard that your style for the album cover designs kind of was born out of a of a hate for Helvetica. <laughs> so I wanted to, I wanted to start there with something controversial. Well, uh, there are a lot of questions there. So first of all, um, I was in the record industry for ten years, from 1972 to 1982, and it was a little bit circuitous because. 
I was originally hired to be uh, an advertising designer in, at CBS Records, which was a, 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 a bad department. Um, the work wasn't especially good. And I wanted to design record covers. And because I designed ads, I was hired at Atlantic Records. And it was, I was hired to do their advertising, but they did the covers and advertising in the same department there. So I made about 25 record covers at Atlantic, many of the ones that were very early, and um, they won awards. So CBS hired me back for the cover department. So I was at the in the industry for 10 years, but I wasn't at CBS technically for 10 years. Ah, I see. Great, great. So that, that's, that's just a clarification. Um, and then you asked me about Helvetica and my record covers. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. When I was in, in college... Helvetica was part of the visual landscape in design school. Mm. Designers um, would make images that were sort of in a modernist style, and they would buy press type that had Helvetica on it, and they would rub Helvetica down in the corner of whatever the assignment was, whether it's a boat jacket or a record cover. And it would look very clean and very good, except for it all looked the same. And I was much more inspired when I was in college by uh, sort of really exciting album cover art, things that were done by Mouse Studios on the West Coast or Victor Moscuso or uh, uh, even um, Hypnosis, but things that had much more uh, vigor and individualism attached to them. And, And so what I became interested in were those things that were influenced by historic faces and to me helvetica was the enemy it meant you were sort of slick you were commercial and it was sort of politically questionable because it was the language of all big corporations that were supporting the vietnam war so Mm. as i was in those days you didn't do that because you didn't want to look like that Mm. um and so that i think this is true of youth culture all the time that you attach meaning to things that don't really have that meaning. They're neutral, but you see them in the context of living within a certain milieu and you make a value judgment about it. Mm. And the period that I'm describing is later described as postmodernism. But it really, I, none of us knew that. None of us called it that. We were just not doing the Swiss international style. Mm. Yeah, and, and I, I remember hearing that... Um you learned a ton on, on the job doing that, doing all those covers. Um, oh, I'm and, and, covers. They were just, you know, I would say I would in probably at the, the biggest point of it, maybe from 1976 to 1980 at the height of the record industry and the success of the record industry, I used to be responsible for 150 covers a year out of which wow. maybe were good and three were excellent. Huh? Wow. That's that's amazing. Uh, typography became uh, important to you at this time as well. Right. Um, you know, going from large photos of the artists, perhaps to uh, you know more more of a typographic lens on, on the cover, and, and that was that. How did how did that arise? You know, that your your love for typography and how it related to the covers that you were designing. Well, there were two two separate things at play. Um, In the beginning, um, I was an art director, and my job was to make images for 
these recording artists who would come in my office and explain sort of what they were about. And I'd listen to some of their music and their band usually was off the title of the album or something that the band held dear to them that we would express. And largely there were photographs. Uh, I, I art directed a lot of photography and a lot of it was terribly mediocre. A lot of it was hiring stylists and, and um, picking out clothes for these mostly guy bands. And, and uh, they were more or less interchangeable. Uh, and then there would be the big recording artists that, that would come and they would be uh, getting their albums done and they would, they would have a lot of power, like a Bruce Springsteen handed me two shots that were, was, were the images for darkness at the edge of town. And it was, it was really, they were, they were Polaroids taken by his butcher. Um, <laughs> wow. Like when I, you know, I put, I put typewriter type on them. Like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, or if I was working with cheap trick and uh, there was a photographer named Jim Houghton, he would shoot them all the time. And he would, he, uh, we would have to cut up, all the photographs and put different heads on different bodies because the band never liked what they looked like totally in any <laughs> the way. It was crazy stuff like that. Wow. Um, well, their, their own bodies or, di- or different yeah, bodies? Yeah, their own bodies. The worst, the worst instance of it, I mean, it started from the moment I started working with them. I think I did five covers with them. And there was an album called Dream Police and they were yeah. uh, all handcuffed to themselves and they were wearing both police uniforms and regular street clothes. And in that image, I think every head and every body was, was attached. It was, you know, you cut out a head from one picture and you put it in another body. And that stuff was, you know, and there was no computer. You were doing this by hand and the retoucher would have to sand the photograph so you couldn't see the line of the cut. I mean, it was, it was quite a production. Wow. But, but I found as I started making these things, and a lot of them were, were illustrations as well, that when the cover got finished, the person that always got the credit was either the photographer or the illustrator. And I, being an art director seemed to be not, not a star-like position that you were really play, mm. you were playing in backfield. And mm. I wanted to explore things that were typographic. And I began to make relationships with the project managers, the, the people that are the product managers, the people that, that were the assigned to recording artists to help them through the company to get their work done. And these people were really great to me because if I would cooperate and put up with a really obnoxious recording artist, they would give me an album cover to design that nobody cared about. And I could do whatever I wanted. And that's when I did most of my typographic explorations. Which is great, and, and so you did that for years, uh, and then and then left actually, right? Left CBS. The record industry went through massive changes. There were there were a series of layoffs yeah. in the eighties, but it was a profession. Mm. It was it was a business where one year had been better than the next since I think the fifties, since the record maybe even since the record car was invented in nineteen forty eight, because people would acquire a 33 and a third collection and replace it with an eight track collection and replace it with a cassette collection and would buy two albums by two artists until it, it saturated. And then, uh, CDs came in and, uh, CBS really wasn't at the top of its game and there was a recession and things stopped selling. So they began laying people off one after the other. And it was very, it was a very oppressive time. Some of it was good for me because, because I was a type designer, I could accomplish an album cover without buying any outside art, so it was cheap for the company. And that's what, that's oh. also a period I did a lot of typographic exp- expression. 
But but after uh, by 1982, I'd had it, and also I'd made about a mile of record covers, and I, I wanted to work <laughs> on something that wasn't a square. So, yeah, I, I, I remember hearing kind of that, that you you said I didn't want to make any squares anymore and, and try something new. Um, and you also said something that's interesting along the lines of if you if you get really good at something and become known for it as you had. Um, then maybe that's the time to start something new and and change it. You have to, because yeah. you know yeah. if you when you do something very well and you're an expert, you have nowhere to go but down. It's it's hard. <laughs> I think it's very hard to to reinvent in an area where you're really totally known for a thing, because there, whoever mm. is 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 coming to you is expecting you to do whatever that thing is, and that's death. Yeah, that and that makes total sense. I, I I think a lot of people get, you know, comfortable, right? And um I think that's one of the things that's striking about your career is that you've there's you've gone through so many different phases of it and yet have have really excelled in every every aspect of that. Well, um, there's the things you never saw. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that, that's true. I I I haven't seen a, any anything that like that yet. So but I, you know, after, so after leaving CBS, um, what, what happened then? You, you decided to start your own practice, I believe. Well, it was a little more circuitous than that. I, I reasoned that I would keep some of the, the relationships I had with the, the project managers of CBS, the product managers, and they would uh, give me album covers to do on the outside, which they did. And at the same time, I had gone around with my portfolio and I met all these book jacket art directors. Uh, because I, I reasoned that that there was a, a short hop between records and books, and that I could start a business. But what I really wanted to do was design a magazine. And I mm. found I had interviewed for a lot of magazine jobs, but I would have had to take a job as assistant art director, which seemed to me to be a step down because I had been, you know, senior art director. East Coast of CBS Records with this mammoth amount of responsibility. So I didn't want to be an, a, an, a, an assistant art director at a magazine. So right, right. I tried to get to design them freelance. And um, I was asked by Time Inc. to develop a magazine called Quality. And uh, Quality uh, was something they were, it was, it was a magazine about. Uh, taste and about upscale lifestyle and about art and music and all these things. And they had uh, Massimo designing a version of it, Massimo Vignelli. They had Milton and Walter Bernard designing a version of it. And they thought it'd be fun to give to somebody who didn't have any magazine experience. So they gave one to me Mm. and everybody was making prototypes. And Milton and Walter and Massimo had big firms and I I was just a freelancer. So they had me come in and work on it in-house. And then I worked on it in-house, and they never launched any of those magazines. But then they had another idea uh, of making a magazine for single women. And uh, it was, it was uh, about lifestyles of people dating. And I think it was called Together or something like that. And it was actually a terrible idea for a magazine. But, but I made a prototype of it, and they decided to invest in it, and they were going to launch it. And so I had to put together a magazine department, and I, I really had never run a magazine before, and I, I got really nervous about it. 
So I hired a, a person I knew named Terry Coppell. I went to college with him. He was from the Boston Globe. And he came back down to New York. He just moved to New York and he was looking for work. And, and I had him come up and work with me uh, to put out this magazine. We were in uh, magazine development. And we were locked into this room. I mean, literally locked in because it was, you know, top secret. Nobody could know what we were doing. <laughs> and it was actually a stupid magazine. And the whole place was a bit creepy, to be quite honest. But we had a great time. I mean, we were just laughing in there all all day long, making jokes about everybody and everything, and mostly the magazine <laughs> we were working on. And out of it, we decided to go into partnership and start up a business. And the assumption was he'd be the editorial designer and I would be the uh, more identity promotion cover designer. And uh, the business was called Copel and Share, and we launched it in 1984. Wow. You mentioned earlier about, you know, creating album covers in the 70s there's no computer that does this there's no photoshop or anything to to lean on was that the case too when you when you started i mean was a lot of your work analog as opposed to digital at, at that stage as well it was totally analog till about 1992 yeah wow wow and what, what did it feel like in terms of about half and half you know i think that the the it splits down the middle yeah yeah and that, that makes sense too because i think a lot of your your work, identity work, and in, in, in branding and, and type, and you're probably not required to use a computer all that much, yeah. or, or or are I'll you? Just I mean, skip right over it. When yeah. you talk to the computer <laughs> and it does what it tells you without t- touching a keyboard or a screen, I'm in. <laughs> I'm a little jealous, actually. I think <laughs> I would love to do I, 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 less I computer work. Be lucky, actually. You know, in, in the, I've been teaching at the School of Visual Arts for almost, uh, since 1982, a very long time, wow. uh, yeah. years yeah. off, but almost straight. And um, I taught kids before the computer, um, and uh, you know, like Gail Anderson was my student then, and Drew Hodges, who founded Spotco, and Richard wow. Baker, yeah. these were all, they were all kids in my class. And then in the 90s, uh, I taught uh, they were they were becoming computerized in the early nineties. In the eighties, it was hard to make make stuff because you spent a lot of time cutting things. And the kids were up all night, and they needed the workshop, and they could be you know they have things you know stuck to their bodies because the waxing machine glued their fingers together or whatever. You know, this was all about it was all about mess. Yeah. In, in the ninety, in the early nineties, it was about what the computer could do, not what you could make. So, you know, kids didn't design type on their on its side because the computer couldn't do that. You would have to print it out of the computer and paste it back on, and then get or rescan it and put it back into the computer. It was a big deal. It was harder than just taking the type, cutting it, and making it mechanical. Or they didn't have the font that was right. You know, the school only had seven fonts, and they didn't know where to buy the font. So they. they Right. We're all about this stuff that really doesn't have very much to do with design. It has much more to do with like, what can this machine do? And I felt bad for those kids because they had to spend so much time with really crappy technology. And the early Adobe fonts weren't very good. Kerning on everything was bad. And some things were just poorly drawn. So when I think about those kids, what happened to them is that each year, if they didn't grow or find a position where they 
they were in control of what's, how something was going to be made and what it would look like, they would pretty much stay in a low-level position. And the, the kids the following year would be more adept at the new software. So this would go on and on and on until the past three years. The past three years of teaching, the technology is truly an extension of these kids' hands. And it is, it is, they can work equally facile on any myriad of programs. And they make things that are appropriate to the project. And the technology is actually irrelevant. Yeah. It's not that they're saying, oh, I'm going to make this because this, this software program does this. Right, right, right. Because they thought of it and they can. And that, that's not that different from me. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think you I remember reading, you, you, you were saying, you know, don't get trapped as a technologist. Um, oh, it's going to change. Kind of, yeah, right, because it's going to change. And I think that's that's really great to keep in mind. I <laughs> I often get trapped, I think. I'm guilty of that. Um, but you also said something that I, that's really great is, is that computers don't smell like an art supply. <laughs> <laughs> it smells like a car. <laughs> Which I think is brilliant. Uh, it's this mechanical object. It's cold. Um, you know, it doesn't. If I, if you go to my studio in the country, I got paintbrushes and and, and mm, yeah. that are gooey. There's <laughs> a tactile thing, and it involves smell and hands, and you know, you sort of use your body to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's what I, I had missed because when I was a record cover designer, I used to comp my own typography uh, by taking a clear piece of acetate and painting the type in sort of the style of the typeface as close as I could get on top of what was called treated acetate so you could see it on the record cover. All of that went away. So I felt mm-hmm. for a period of time like my art went away. Huh. Wow, that, that, that's fascinating. That's why I played those maps. Yes, exactly, and I, I want to talk about those for sure. It's, a, it's incredible stuff. Um, is that part of the reason you started painting the maps? Is is because you wanted to get back to creating stuff with your hands, and 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 that was an outlet for that. Um, there were three things that happened all at the same time, um, and it was the end of the end of the nineties. Nineteen ninety eight I designed the Citibank logo and I was in working on that thing for a year, you know, like minor iterations of it to get a final approval. You know, and it went on and on and on and on and many committees, et cetera, et cetera. So I felt like I didn't make anything because I was all about this sort of form of persuasion about something that was gonna be global but also a lot of minutiae in terms of detail. It was mm-hmm. it was depressing. You know, like I mean I, I the the the, I liked. I actually liked the people I worked with. I, you know, I don't want to make it like a bad client thing because it wasn't. It was really the the what happens when you work for a large corporation. You have all the divisions involved, and there's, you know, there's this merger, and Pete, there was sort of some different departments that didn't agree, and that sort of thing. So this went on literally for a year, and at the same time, I found all around me that the 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 business. The, the sort of business that, that seemed to require design was websites and people were designing websites and that we were look, Pentagram was even looking like a, like a 
a sort of a backward firm because we were really didn't have a good website designer. I didn't want to do mm. websites because I really like things that were tactile and live. I, I really, you know, I like things that are on film, but I want to make sure the screen is really big. Um, I just, I just like working a website was just not that interesting to me. So I had this desire, first of all, to make something physical. And that was where the painting started to be important. And at the same time, I wanted to find a different way to work that wasn't dependent on the Internet and, and, and working in that venue. And I discovered environmental graphics, which were perfect for because they were big and they were outside and they were tactile and they last. They weren't temporary. So that, that, and this all happened between, say, 1998 and 2000, where I, where I began painting and doing these, these painted buildings and, and things that you probably know. And it was really in a very short time period. Wow. That is a short time period. Now, you mentioned Citibank, and I, I also, read somewhere where you, you said, well, I, I drew it in the back of a cab on a napkin. It wasn't in the back of a cab. It was, I think it was at the end of the meeting. Oh, oh, sorry. Yes. I'm sorry. In, at, in the, at the end of the I first meeting. I stuff in backs of cabs. So, you know. Yeah, that's, that wasn't, that was another, that was another uh, quote I have here, but, but um, that, that was fascinating too. And, and you, you said, you know, look, it was, I might've done it quickly then, but it, it, it took, you know, that, sort of my whole life of, of learning to sort of get to that point where you can um, visualize it. It isn't um, just but then, visualizing. It's like what really takes 34 years or whatever that quote was isn't the just the, the knowing how to create the form of the logo. It's knowing how to create the form of the logo and explain it and argue for it. Yeah, the, the, the selling of it to, to the client. Um, you, you mentioned uh, working on that for, for a year. Uh, I assume that's because this is a giant brand um, project that touches all different points of of the of the company, or 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 was it literally like the the convincing and selling or or explaining of of what that was? Uh, it was both. It was the, the first of all they weren't they weren't committed to it, so there was I had to do a lot of exploration of like different uses of it or how it would lock up with uh, Solomon's that Barney that they had bought and. And um, all these sub-brands they had and show evolutions of the thing and then make, you know, accoutrements, whether it was stationary or credit cards or what, you know. So it was a lot of demonstration. And then, you know, demonstration and showing and then questions and criticism. There was a private bank and a city mortgage. And I mean, they had had a lot of subsets, a lot of Mm -hmm. sub-brands. It's amazing because, you know, seeing the logo now, it's it's a wonderful logo and it like, it makes a ton of sense. You know, I, I, it's been around, I, I, it's so recognizable. And, um, and then it's funny to hear that they weren't committed to it, you know, (laughs) after, you know, now it's, it just, it seems so right, you know, now. The, uh, I think the logo ran and I just saw, you know, I, I, one of my clients, actually both of them, the woman, there were two women who were our clients and Michael Beirut, who did went to a lot of the meetings. They were they were uh, Anne McDonald, who was I think the director of global marketing and, adver- and advertising, and, and Susan Avard, who was uh, 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 I think global designer. I, I, I don't remember exactly the job titles, but they were uh, they were terrific. And that 
that they had to, you know, get all these divisions in line as well. And um, there was an ad that was scheduled, and Fallon was the advertising agent. There, the ad was scheduled, and the advertising campaign was was approved. It was the Live, Live Richly campaign, and they were just out of time. So they just took the logo that had survived everything from really the first meeting because it kept turning up. There was a, there was a, uh, Susan remembers that it was in the first four that we presented and the, the arc needed redrawing. Like there was, there were some glitchy things about it, but it, it survived this entire year of all these other things coming back and it just kept, it just kept staying there. (laughs) So they put it on the ad and then it was the logo. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I'm sure they're glad they they did, uh, you know, because like I said, it just seems I can't imagine another logo because it, you know. They, they, you know, I still work for them. I'm working on their corporate headquarters. They moved they moved downtown, and, oh, wow. and you know, they're still a big, you know, messy corporation like so many are. But they're you know, they're they're very sweet about it. And, and the, hmm. the logo is now 20 years old. Wow! Yeah. This week's episode is brought to you by Wix.com. With Wix, the web is your playground. Start with a blank slate and design your website in any layout you want. Work with advanced features like retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, and sophisticated design effects. Each feature is intuitive to use, so you're in control from design to live. With Wix, you'll have real creative freedom to tell your story online exactly the way you've envisioned it. Push the limits of design and start creating beautiful, impactful websites that are uniquely yours. Go to Wix.com slash Dribble to get started today. That's W-I-X dot com slash Dribble. Wix, what will you create? I think I do remember hearing you mention about about old identities that you've created that you some of them, or maybe many of them, I'm not sure you can you can tell us, but um, that you would you would go back and and redesign it or tweak it, and in some cases, you know, a large part of the population wouldn't know, but you felt like you wanted to you know tweak it or update it or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I redid the public theater logo three times. Um, the, oh, wow. the original logo was um, you know it's pre computer. And it was uh, a Morgan. It was it was made out of these this Morgan family of American wood type, and it, it was it was corrected a bit so that the thick to thin part of the public was was balanced, and some of it had to be drawn by hand. But mostly, it was it was uh, taken right from the Morgan Library. Um, and I saw there I, uh, there's a book by Rob Roy Kelly on American wood types. And you would see within the book, I saw these R's and different widths that were, that were drawn that were just beautiful. And that's where the idea came from. Then, uh, about, I think 10 years into it, it really was annoying because the, the fonts had been digitized. I mean, Jonathan Heffler redrew a lot of the Morgan weights in something called knockout. Oh right, yeah. So yeah. I changed I changed the the logo uh, to not no I know I did that later. Oh, oh, there was one in the middle. They had a 50th anniversary and they thought they'd change it. And for the 50th anniversary, I decided to go against wood type, 
and I designed the type and accidents grotesque, and I redrew the logo and the mm. weights as accidents grotesque. Then we switched it to knockout. So it's really four times. We switched to knockout and the knockout version uh, said the public, but the the was, I think, on the outside of the logo. And now we have it where it just sort of says public period and it's horizontal, not vertical. So it's really four times. Right. <laughs> wow. It, that's, that's amazing. I, uh, really familiar with knockout and that's i I didn't know that that's that's what it was based on that's interesting i use as Um, the principal file of the public i use it on really everything and we use it in all all the different heights and weights and it's got a lot of versatility so you can really change it and when you see it all together you you know it's all it all feels sort of like a one piece but it's also different over different years and you feel the change of it right right that's what's so great about that and i is it um it must be Tell me what it's like to to see that style. I mean, you really pioneered that. I mean, there that that there's a I, I don't know. It's it's New York, but it's also so recognizable uh, using wood type in that way. And is is it interesting to see uh, other people kind of lifting that idea for other other projects? Or well, you know, I'll tell you, it's there's a problem with it that I'm kind of glad happened because it, it, it helped me, it's helped me move things. But there was a period when, when bring in the noise, bring in the funk was, was released. And this thing was all over New York. Um, the yeah. play was a big hit because mostly the public theaters work, but it was a small theater and, and not everybody saw it. They, you know, they would see things that would be uh, the sort of advertising that might be done for the Broadway musical cats you know, and they, or, or right. things that said the whiz is a wow, you know, that's what theater advertising was like. <laughs> yeah. And so the public theater was very no nonsense, sort of big, bold, urban, just the facts, man, here's the name of the play. This is the date and time and no, no bullshit line, you know, right. right. Line. Um, and it's still like that. And when we did it, it was, uh, it was radical and Chicago opened, uh, I think a year after uh, Bring in the Noise, and um, Spotco uh, did an advertising campaign that utilized a lot of the fonts. And it wasn't exactly like the public. It wasn't quite as eccentric, but, but it had a look. And it emulated the way I did the, the newspaper advertising for the public. So the, the Chicago had much more money and was much more visible than the public theater work. So, so Chicago looked like that was their identity and the public looked like it was copying Chicago. Oh, geez. That was sort of bad. Um, And and then also there were so many other things in New York that were designed like that. And it just sort of became a kind of a style. Right. So after that, I I changed the public theater and I I went to like the most opposite kind of, I kept the logo and went to the most opposite kind of typography I could go to. But the problem was that, that it, the theater didn't do enough advertising and that you couldn't afford to do these sorts of grand shifts and expect to have real recognizability. So there was a period, I would say, of about five or six years where I really don't think I did a good job for them, not because the individual things I made weren't good, but because I didn't really understand how all of this worked together. Mm. And uh, I discovered it in about 2010. And now instead of working to make images 
that are different for individual plays, I make seasons where, where all, everything is connected and you can tell what season you're in. And then the next year, it'll be a whole other season. And mm-hmm. this, has been, this has been really quite successful and the public has really grown as an institution. So I feel, I feel like I've just learned so much from the whole experience of doing this for 24 years. Wow. That's a, yeah, that's a, and that's a long period of time to have a client, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty great. It's pretty amazing. And I, it probably speaks to, well, a lot of things, but speaks to, you know, you and relationship with the, with the people that, that run the theater. Well, I think there's, there was a, a, a pretty amazing part. Um, I was hired by a, a wonderful theater director named George Wolf, who was a genius and had his own view of what the public should be. And uh, at a certain point in time, I think there was a, a play that was a flop, and they put in a managing director to help him manage money. And then for a period of time, there were the two of them, and then George left. And the managing director did not get the job, and they hired um, a director from a, a playhouse in Rhode Island named Oscar Eustace. And Oscar came, and he worked with the, the managing director, and that was probably the worst period of the work because two of them were kind of butting heads and they had different views about things. So, so the, the unique communication I had with George was gone and it was more like an ordinary client. I was thinking, you know, I knew, I knew the work. I mean, a couple of the summer posters were nice, but the, the general output wasn't as, as good as it had been. And I was sort of worried about it. And then Mara, the, uh, the, uh, managing director left and Oscar Eustace called me up and I said, okay, here it goes. I'm going to get fired. And I went, he invited me out to lunch and, and he had lunch and he said, you know, I always loved when you first did the public for George Wolf. Can you do it all over again for me? Huh. And amazing huh. that is, I mean, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he has uh, really grown this theater. I mean, it's such a, a hotbed of creativity and, and, uh, uh, the, the summer is much more ambitious and there are, are more plays and programs and they've just built a new rehearsal space and it's really quite an enterprise. And you know, some of the best plays on Broadway are coming out, you know, like Hamilton was begun at the public theater. You know. Oh, is that right? Wow. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, so it's been, it's been miraculous in that, I think what's unusual about it is not just the length of time, but that there were two completely different directors. It's amazing. And I, I think that, you know, you, you have with that work, you, you really have or had started a, uh, a style, but I think, you know, to all the listeners, like <laughs> know your history, know where things originate from and, uh, thank Paula for that. Also, thank you for, uh, windows, windows eight <laughs> and, Microsoft work. Yeah. I think that I, I wonder if you could just tell us about that briefly because I, I, uh, it was such, such a welcome as a, as an Apple fan for my whole life. It was, it was a welcome, uh, site and, and just the whole, I can't imagine the, the breadth of that project and, and, and how, um, how, how large or, Difficult or not difficult, it was. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit. Well, I, to be honest with you, it wasn't that difficult. Um, 
it was uh, the re- the response to it was was hard. I mean, not the tech, actually, not the tech uh, writers' response, but the design community's response. Um, really? Yeah, I remember. Uh, well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the story of how it came to be and and what happened. Microsoft had worked with Wolf Olin, um, who was their their design firm of record, to develop this thing called a principle based identity system. The principle-based identity system, the notion would be that if you created a logo for one organization, there'd be a methodology that all the, all the organizations would link and look similar. So it was, it, was, it was taking the logos that existed and creating some basis by which they connect. Mm, and yeah. it was uh, – I saw what Will Follins did, and it was lovely. There was absolutely nothing wrong with it. it was, they had a stylistic way of, hand, of drawing all the logos. So they didn't really redesign the logos. They threw them in a stylistic way that connected them. And mm-hmm. apparently what happened was the logo, the first person that was going to have to launch it was Windows because they were launching Windows 8 and that this thing landed at Windows and there was a big pushback because they weren't involved in it. It was developed in uh, corporate under Steve Ballmer and not in the Windows brand. So, uh, right. so this, is, this is actually typical of corporations that have subsets that compete with each other. And if you take Apple's structure and you take Microsoft's structure, they're really opposite and both successful for different reasons. Is that you know Ab- Apple essentially makes objects of desire that that are beautifully designed and that you there's status in having them. Uh, there you know that you if you have the latest iPhone, you're cool. Microsoft makes tools. I mean, Microsoft's products are bum- bundled into your Apple computer, and you're not even aware of it. You don't care. You give Apple all the credit for all that stuff inside. That, <laughs> right, right. that stuff is made in places like like Office. You know, that's the name of, of a Microsoft company. And and the Bill Gates philosophy about Microsoft was that he wanted to give the power to the individual engineers. So they would they would become innovators and run their own divisions and invent product, and that's a good idea too. They're both good ideas. They just the end result is that Apple is going to be more monolithic and carefully organized, and Microsoft, by virtue of the way they're structured, are going to be a little more erratic. So Windows Eight was a significant departure because it uh, uh, was a flat color design system uh, that didn't have. Uh, icons, but actually used a, a, a color system to to direct and to communicate information, and it was radical. And, uh, I worked with a guy named Sam Moreau who, who hired us, and he hired us to to come and take a six month period and see if we could we could develop a system for them that could then be translated to the rest of the company. So. In that discussion of really what the difference was between Windows and Microsoft, between Windows and Apple, it was clear that Apple made these objects of desire and Windows made tools that people use from their own perspective. And that perspective became a wonderful analogy about how to think about a whole system for Microsoft. And that when I looked at the history of the um, Windows logo, the first logo was sort of an eccentric series of you know boxes making a window, and they weren't equal, and there was no real grid. It sort of there was a small one and a big one, and, 
and it was just sort of idiosyncratic. And then they started, you could tell almost what was sent, said in a meeting. Like somebody probably said, oh, that window is too static. So they, they began making it look dimensional. Or they, they, then somebody said, oh, but it's digital. we got to show we're digital. So then the logo became bitmapped. And it looked like it moved and bitmaps moved. And then somebody, right. oh, but we got a lot of happy. We've got to show a lot of color. And then they broke it into four colors. And then somebody, because the colors don't mean anything, I asked what the colors meant. They represent nothing. Then, <laughs> that's good to know. Somebody says it needs some dimension. So the sort of wiggly thing that looked like a flag, it looked like either tile or a flag. That's all I could say when I saw it. You know, and I, I, said, I said to them, which has been quoted, your name is Windows, why are you a flag? Yeah, right. No, it was completely uh, a result of, of something that happened in a marketing meeting. Somebody yeah. went back and changed it, and, and that this is always how these things happen. So I, I reasoned that they didn't mean, they never meant to draw a waving flag. They wanted to show a window in perspective, and they thought it w- if you drew a window in perspective, it probably would look too static, so they made it wiggle. I think that if they... They did that because at a certain point in time, the logo was only going to be a static thing on the screen because it wasn't animating. But the minute you, you throw animation into the mix, you don't have to make it, you don't have to think about it looking like it's moving. It can move. Right, right. So, so we did, we, what we did is we, we did a drawing um, on my team of a perspective chart and put the window in the, the certain proportion and then show, showed them what would happen if the, to the, to the form of the window when it moved through space. And sometimes it would be linear and sometimes it would be really wide, but then you actually had permission to do that. But the window logo was a window drawing perspective. Right, right. Then what we did is uh, we took the perspective chart and we began drawing other icons into it. And we went around to talk to different departments. And we worked with Office for a while and we never could get them to buy anything. Then we went to another division and they sort of pushed back. And then my six months was up. We left them with a pers- perspective chart and some rules of how to do this thing. And then Windows 8 launched. And then one by one, almost everything changed into the perspective chart without me being there or doing anything. Oh, wow. Oh. So, yeah, I mean, what, what, what happened there? Then? Um, Windows is uh, like, you know, the 3,000-pound elephant in the room. Windows did it. Everybody else thought it was fine. Thing came out. I mean, I remember Armin Vitt found uh, a drawing of the Windows logo from um, some Chinese pirated image, and he ran it on brand new uh, before the thing was even launched. And it mm. and the drawing of it was bad for one thing, but but everybody just thought it was the most awful thing on the planet. And I remember I was on vacation um, in. Uh, the Florida Keys, like reading this hateful emails, you know, and all this Twitter crap that went on forever and ever. Mm-hmm. Like that, you know, like it was almost like I was afraid to go out of the house. Oh, jeez. Oh. stop. The, that was the first time that happened at that extreme. After that, it happens regularly, but then I, I wasn't used to it. Right, right. Well, that's terrible. I, I, 
it's kind of one of those things I, I, on a small level I've always uh, experienced with with client work sometimes. But that's sort of a you know very public uh, version of that that I that I can't imagine. Uh, and in the end, I think to me it's a vast improvement. You know, like you said, it was a flag before, and it needed so much <laughs> needed so much help. And you look at all the logos, you actually see it work. I mean, there are a few that you know, yeah. they bought Skype, and I, I noticed that never followed it, but most of them do. Uh, yeah. Xbox, yeah. I don't think, will ever change. You know, you could just run right. around. But uh, the in-house art department adopted it. It became part of a standard, and, and, and the companies did it, and the, and the things bundled into it. The sub-brands did it as well. Right, right. So it's right. really quite cohesive. It is. It is. I, 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 yeah. Um, wow. It, this is amazing. I, You know, we could go on for, well, I could go on for, <laughs> for asking you about all these different projects you've done because it's just fascinating to hear um but I, I you know thank you so much for for being on here paula it's it's been an honor i'm glad that you know our community and the greater design community can can hear a little bit more behind all these all these uh great pieces of work well thanks for asking it was fun yeah thanks so much this has been overtime dribble's official podcast i'm dan cedarholm And thanks for listening to this week's episode. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again. Thanks again.